0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, last week a small nation in the Pacific made some big geopolitical waves. A draft security cooperation agreement between China and Solomon Islands has been leaked on social media. The unverified document includes seven articles which discuss the scope of cooperation between both nations. The leaked security deal, which has since been confirmed by the Solomons' Prime Minister, has been seen as further evidence of China's growing influence in the Pacific and stoked fears New Zealand's and Australia's influence is on the wane.
1: The Defence Minister says the draft security arrangement between China and Solomon Islands took him by surprise. Pene Hinare says it would be extremely concerning if any other Pacific nations were eyeing a similar deal. We do see this as, as gravely concerning.
0: So today on The Detail, is this really that big of a deal? Why are New Zealand diplomats and government officials getting so worked up about an independent nation exercising its own sovereignty over its own affairs? And are New Zealand and Australia reaping what they've sowed in taking the Pacific Islands for granted for so many
2: decades? If we wish to be honest with ourselves, we have to look back and say, in the recent decades, have we put the effort in that we should have put in? And the honest answer is, no,
3: we haven't done as much as we should have done.
0: Thomas Manch is a political reporter for Stuff. He spoke to the details producer, Sarah Robson. Sarah began by asking him to outline exactly what this draft agreement says. It's pretty wide-ranging. It's basically a security partnership, um, but it,
3: it has contingencies that allow for China to replenish ships and to bring military personnel into Solomon Islands, unusually to protect Chinese personnel and Chinese projects it seems fairly broad um most of the people who who are sort of experts in, in these areas that i've spoken to have said you know it's it's hard to get a sense of what it could actually mean because it's pretty wide ranging
1: but it could give china the ability to bring military personnel to solomon islands ships other military assets
3: oh definitely um the you know there was a there was a list in the agreement and Forgive me, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it referred to military um, police and then also armed police. It made a distinction between those two. It makes specific references to replenishment of ships or vessels. Um, and keeping in mind that Solomon Islands apparently does not have a, have a, a port facility that would actually accommodate a Chinese naval vessel at this point. You know, The Solomon Islands would have to request that assistance. And this is a point that the Prime Minister made um, in his in his relatively fiery speech in the Parliament over there um, in recent days. And he said, you know, we would have to request this assistance from China. It's something we this agreement is something we sought from China. Um, It would be done on our terms. Um, What he didn't mention though was that there is there is an interesting little phrase in there that China may, according to its own need, um, and with the consent of Solomon Islands make ship visits, carry out logistical replenishment and, and have stopover and transition in the islands. So that's, I mean, according to its own need, it seems seems fairly um, permissive, you know, um, and it's left a lot of room for both speculation that it basically implies a naval base will be built. Other experts are, are a bit more measured and say it implies that, you know, some sort of facility will be constructed that could be used in this way if needed.
1: So how has the New Zealand government responded to this draft agreement?
3: It's been a really strong response, which has been really interesting. It's, it's some of the firmest language we've seen um, from the government, from the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister in regard to China. The possibility of a, of a Chinese military base in the Pacific has been front of mind for um, New Zealand government officials for some time. It was referenced in last year a defence assessment produced by the Ministry of Defence, it's a clear concern, but there's been no ambiguous language here from Ardern or from Mahuda. Right away, Mahuda came out and she said this would not benefit the Pacific. She referenced specifically the agreement in, in its draft nature. Ardern has similarly said, you know, grave concern about this and m- made multiple references to militarisation of the Pacific.
1: We see such acts as the potential militarisation of the region. Uh, and also uh, see very uh, little reason in terms of the Pacific security for such uh, a need and such a presence.
3: It's in many ways actually stronger than b- what the Australian politicians have said in regard to this, which is quite unusual when you think about how usually Australian um, politicians are far more forward-leading in foreign policy space, far more aggressive against China and its building influence in the region than um, New Zealand politicians are. So it's, yeah, it's been quite interesting watching this unfold.
2: Basically, it outlines a number of possible cooperations between the Solomon Islands and China.
0: Iati Iati is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Victoria University.
2: And it goes from police to possibly a uh, military cooperation. There are any number of possibilities. Uh, look, you have to look at this also in relation to the 2018 security agreement between Australia and the Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, It's kind of similar in certain ways. Of course, the Australian one is a little bit more detailed, so there are differences. But this is not anything that uh, people should get too overly worried about. Uh, It's, it's, In my view, at least, it's just a normal development in country-to-country relations. I think one of the problems from New Zealand and Australia's end is they've always viewed this region through a strategic lens, and so whenever you put China, military and the Pacific into a sentence, uh, you get everyone freaking out. Mm. But I think uh, you, they probably want to just calm down a little bit and, and just see how this plays out. There's it, nothing to be too worried about right now. It's just normal relations.
0: In terms of New Zealand and Australia's view of the Pacific geopolitically and geostrategically, I suppose, how would you kind of articulate that? And what are the fears from, from New Zealand and Australia's perspectives here?
2: Well, uh, the Western camp in general, and here I'm talking about Australia, New Zealand, United States, have pretty much always treated this region or engaged this region through a strategic lens. You can go all the way back to the um, Canberra Pact, Uh, you can go to the ANZAC Treaty, you look at the American policy of strategic denial in Micronesia.
0: This reference relates to an agreement between the USA and the Federated States of Micronesia, whose waters stretch across more than 2 million square kilometres of the Pacific Ocean. Under this agreement, the US retains what's called strategic denial... It essentially means the US can freely use the waters of Micronesia and, if it so wishes, can deny other sovereign nations the right to enter those waters.
2: Uh, this region has to them been a region for geostrategic competition and one that they've actually controlled for the last part of the 20th century. Mm. But things are changing and there are different actors coming into the region. And because they've engaged the region in this sort of strategic framework, Uh, Any entry into the region from a big power that's not in their camp is going to send warning signals to them.
1: New Zealand has been issued a stark warning. Our strategic environment is deteriorating and becoming the most challenging it's been in decades.
0: The Defence Ministry's latest assessment highlights strategic competition as a key threat, which it says is driven by China.
2: That's the problem when you're always treating the Pacific as a geostrategic um, ballpark, if you will, uh, where these countries become geopolitical pawns. And that's pretty much how the big powers in the Western camp have treated them. Mm. Now, from a Pacific Island perspective, uh, they have two sort of really key priorities. Uh, One is to really uh, have autonomy in their affairs, both regionally and as individual countries. And two, they've been having issues with development ever since they gained independence. So when they see a country like China coming into the region, what they see are opportunities for development. And also a broadening of the menu of um, partners to work with, which then gives them greater autonomy and agency. So you have sort of two different perspectives operating here. And that's why from a Pacific Islander perspective, they're not seeing this as much of a threat. Whereas because Australia, New Zealand and the United States uh, largely treat the region as a geopolitical theater, to them it's a threat.
0: That's a really fascinating answer, and, and it leads to, to the question, of course, you know, you, you talk about how New Zealand and Australia, and maybe the Western the Western bloc in the Pacific, I suppose, view the Pacific islands, but how do you think New Zealand and Australia are perceived in the Pacific?
2: Um, by and large, uh, New Zealand is considered sort of a closer family member to the Pacific than Australia is. Uh, Australia does tout itself as part of the family, but... Um, Uh, I think New Zealand culturally has closer links to the Pacific and obviously constitutionally with our relations with the cooks, Niue and Tokelau. But in in, in other um, senses, uh, we are viewed also in uh, a similar position And this usually comes up when we have diplomats on both sides of the Tasman speaking in a similar language like we've just had recently in response to the Solomon's conflict. Mm. Uh, You will have heard uh, from the other side of the ditch, them talking about the Pacific as their backyard. You will have heard our Prime Minister use the same language. And that kind of insulting language um, is perceived in the same way by Pacific Island countries. And that's why you will have noticed Prime Minister Sogavari give his speech recently in Parliament using the words that this is a really sort of insulting way to treat them. And discussions in the Australian public media encouraging the invasion of Solomon Islands to force a regime change, Mr. Speaker, does nothing to strengthen our bilateral relations. When a helpless mouse, Mr. Speaker, is cornered by a, by vicious cats, Mr. Speaker, it will do anything to survive. This kind of sentiment has come through from the Pacific Island countries for a while now. You can go back to speeches by the former Prime Minister of Samoa, Tulaipas um, Malilin Aoi. Uh, you can look at comments by the former Secretary-General, uh, Meg Taylor, who expressed similar sort of concerns about the sort of condescending approach by Australia and New Zealand towards the region. And it, like I said, it does come out now and then in their rhetoric, which portrays uh, some element of how they see the region. Uh, like I said, when you ever start using the term backyard, now it, it could mean a sphere of influence, mm. But the negative connotations are hard to get away from. They're quite insulting to Pacific Island countries.
1: Here, I think it's very much a matter of us recognising, look, these are sovereign nations uh, who are, of course, absolutely entitled to uh, pursue their own security arrangements. But actually, as a region, and I say as a region... The Pacific Island nations in particular coming together and actually asking the question, well, what gaps are there? What needs are there? And how can we support one another to fill those so that we're not having to look beyond Hmm. our own Pacific family?
0: In a sense, China really is a more natural bedfellow for Pacific nations, isn't it? In a sense, you know, it's the closest superpower, like real superpower. And... While New Zealand and Australia in particular are maybe culturally more similar to Western nations like the States and, and the UK, that is surely m- more a byproduct of colonisation than anything else.
2: Well, you have to remember that um, in terms of colonisation, China shares a better history or a more similar history to Pacific Island countries in Australia and New Zealand do. Mm. Uh, they too were colonised. They too have you know, um, experienced issues with development, uh, issues with great, uh, gaining greater autonomy over their affairs. And in that sense, they can relate a little bit better to Pacific Island countries. And that's why you have the narrative from China's side of South-South cooperation uh, sort of finding a a, a really audience in the Pacific. Uh, Look, New Zealand, I don't want to say is is too detached from the Pacific, but like I said, when it comes to New Zealand Australia acting in concert, they do at times seem a little bit detached from how Pacific Island countries tend to operate. And... um, in that sense, China does seem somewhat of a better fit in that they can relate a little bit better to the experiences of Pacific Island countries.
0: Can you elaborate on that a when you say that New Zealand and Australia seem a bit detached from how Pacific Islands operate? Expand on that for me, if you could. What do you mean?
2: Look, of all, of, of all the countries that really should understand the region, it should be Australia and New Zealand yeah. because we've been in the region for over 100 years, both as colonisers and then as aid donors trying to help these countries to develop When we came out with the Pacific Reset under Winston Peters, uh, one of the things that uh, Minister Peters then said was we need greater understanding of the region. We all need to understand the changed environment, and the Pacific Reset had a proper, serious evaluation of that, and that's why it's a very, very critical part of our present foreign policy.
3: And is the Pacific Reset specifically to counter China?
2: No. It's to ensure that the shape and character of our neighbourhood maintains the level of influence of countries who believe in democracy, who believe in freedom, who believe in self-government, who believe in sovereignty, and countries who have got the best interests of the neighbourhood in mind, not some wider and larger purpose. Which is a bit of a shock if you've had over 100 years plus of relations with the region to actually admit that we need greater understanding. And another thing that Winston Peters had said is we need to move from a uh, donor recipient relationship to a partnership relationship. Hmm. And so, by his own words, by the admissions from New Zealand Australia side, um, we were not quite in with the Pacific. We were treating them as donor recipient, uh, sort of uh, in that type of relationship, as opposed to partners. Now, you have China coming in with the language of South-South cooperation. We're a developing country. You're a developing country. We understand you.
0: South-South cooperation is international relations speak for the idea of developing countries banding together to help one another develop more quickly.
2: And you can kind of see the differences in approaches. And I think at that level, you will see a distinction between uh, what you refer to, I guess, as Pacific metropolitan powers and Pacific Island countries.
0: (laughs) You mentioned the Pacific Reset, uh, which was a big policy shift, really, a really big policy shift um, in, in the foreign mm-hmm. relations sphere uh, that New Zealand announced a couple of years ago when Winston Peters was the foreign minister. And that reassertion of influence, in in practical terms, it takes the form of investment, does it?
2: Well, it does take a form of investment. And we, I think, pumped an extra nearly $800 million. Uh, into the region on top of what we were already given. Um, but it's not just about fi- financial assistance, it's also about diplomatic relations. And so under the reset, we had an additional 14 uh, positions under MFAT dedicated to the region. So those were, I think, the two main prongs of our Pacific reset policy. The
0: thing that's lurking in the background here is that you know this Pacific reset policy was announced a few years ago but China has been investing very heavily in the Pacific for a long time, hasn't it?
2: China has invested in the Pacific, but if you were to go by Lowy Institute uh, data on aid to the Pacific, uh, look, Australia has been the number one aid donor to the region for decades. Mm-hmm. And together with New Zealand, the United States and other Western allies and partners, they've heavily outspent China in this in this region. So if um, people are looking to understand as to why China's influence is growing. Uh, it's certainly not because of how much money they're given. Uh, it's primarily because of how they've spent their money.
0: And this is something that I think you've 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 written about. Is while Australia and New Zealand might give more in absolute terms, oftentimes that money comes with strings attached, doesn't it? You know, scrutiny of how that money is spent. Um, you know, insistence upon democratic elections and so on and so forth, which is not necessarily the case with Chinese investment.
2: Yeah, so we've uh, always uh, have a reputation of uh, attaching conditions to our aid um, under what we refer to as aid conditionality. Uh, We expect certain things along the lines of governance, uh, democracy, etc. to be upheld. Uh, Certain reforms to be made before we are able to release our aid. Uh, Look, China has come in and said pretty much, um, Pacific Island countries, you tell us what you need and we will try our best to fund it. And so, in that respect, um, it may look like from one perspective that uh, uh, China is simply just giving money without any accountability. But on the other hand, it's, uh, the other argument is that China is actually respecting the sovereignty and autonomy of these countries um, to decide what is the best use for the aid coming in.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I guess that that thematically links back to what you were talking about before in terms of the idea of sort of like like a tacit condescension, almost like a like a big brother, little brother kind of relationship that maybe New Zealand and Australia, whether consciously or unconsciously assert, you can see how Solomon Islands and countries of that ilk in the Pacific would feel patronised by that.
2: Well, absolutely. Look, um, if you consider that a lot of these countries were under the colonial yoke for mm-hmm. the better part of the 20th century, uh, when you gain your independence, I think sovereignty and autonomy are two of the things that you most cherish. So any sense of neocolonialism, any sense of paternalism is really going to run counter to what uh, these countries are trying to achieve. And then when you have aid conditionality um, policies being implemented in the region, when the region is being told to do, follow certain plans like the Pacific plan, when uh, neoliberalism is pushed in the region like we tried to do in the 1990s, mm. um, you know, th- th- that's intrusion into areas that Pacific Island countries are really trying to protect in order to promote their sovereignty and autonomy.
0: And I guess that's all totally fair enough. But someone who's listening to this might also think, Mm -hmm. you two are getting way too academic about this kind of stuff. China is doing some really worrying stuff. Sorry, I'm actually going to say the CCP's, the Chinese Communist Party's culture, in terms of repression of free speech, um, repression of freedom of the press, uh, the treatment of ethnic minorities. I mean, there's a laundry list of of stuff that the Chinese Communist Party engages in that you'd almost say is objectively not good. And people who are listening to this of that point of view might say that we here are missing the forest for the trees, if you know what I mean?
2: That is one side of the argument. Um, Look... There are a whole host of big actors who are doing things around the world that um, goes against a lot of ethical standards. Mm. And um, the United States would be also in that camp. Yeah. Uh, they've done things in the Middle East, for example, that a lot of people would take issue with. But we have no problems establishing good relations with the United States. From a Pacific Island perspective, these are small independent countries who are not going to go and check the reputation of all the big powers and how they're operating in the Middle East or in Asia or in Europe, for that matter. Uh, What they're looking at is, you know, how can we get out of the situation we're in Mm. developmental-wise in terms of exercising more autonomy? If people are thinking that uh, Pacific Island should be taking into account all those other issues... Uh, They're missing the fact that these countries have a whole host of issues they have to deal with from climate change to governance to accountability to poverty. And uh, I think it's a little bit unfair to try and heap all these other issues on them to try and consider in establishing their diplomatic relations when even countries like Australia and New Zealand are happy to do business with a lot of these big powers they may do things that we don't agree with in other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. I guess it goes back to what you were saying before in terms of, you know, the priority in many of these Pacific islands is... Uh,
2: it's autonomy
0: and development. Autonomy and development, exactly. And it's easy for New Zealand to preach from its pulpit about uh, the importance of upholding, you know, the democracy and the and the world order and not getting in, in to ch- with China because we are autonomous and we are developed.
2: Yes, and for a long time, look, New Zealand has ignored certain issues with other big powers in order to get along with them for trade purposes. It's not new to our history. And, you know, it it, it served the purpose for New Zealand's development and there's no reason to deny the the Pacific Islands that opportunity as well.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Thomas Manch and Iati Iati. Matewa.